Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Before I start, though, I, I, have, to, I have to address this issue. And it's, it's probably, it's not going to reflect real well on me. I, as some of you know, I have a little bit of a reputation. And there's a couple guys that are really hard on me in our congregation about some, uh, some things they think are weaknesses. But you'll understand where I'm going when I, I share this story. A couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Russ was sharing a story uh, from the pulpit about an event that happened in McWanago. He shared how he pulled into the drive-thru at McDonald's, and it's a two-car drive-thru, and Four cars were lined up in the left lane, and nobody was lined up in the right lane, so he figured he would take the right lane. And remember how he told you one of the people got all upset with him in the lane with four cars in it, that he dare not go into that empty lane, that he should wait in the lane that's already crowded. And they were really upset, and it bothered Brother Russ. And uh, so when he got up to the window, he was ahead of the person that had been making the biggest complaint, and he decided that he was going to buy his dinner, or whatever he ordered at McDonald's. He told the person at the window, I want to pay for my bill, and I want to pay for the bill of the person behind me. And after he left, I'm sure he felt pretty good about himself, you know, that that was a kind thing to do. But I want to share you a story that I came across from another person. And I'll be honest with you, I actually relate more to this story than I do to Pastor Russ's story. And let me read what he wrote. I was in the McDonald's drive-thru this morning, and the young lady behind me leaned on her horn because I was taking too long to place my order. Take the high road, I thought to myself. So when I got to the first window, I paid for her order along with my own. The cashier must have told her what I'd done because as we moved up, she leaned out her window and waved to me and mouthed, thank you, obviously embarrassed that I had repaid her rudeness with a kindness. Well, when I got to the second window, I showed them both receipts and took her food too. So I guess I, I actually relate more to that one than I did the other one. So I thought that would be a light way to start tonight because what we're going to be talking about might be a little heavier. And uh, as Billy Cole always used to do, he'd always get people laughing before he hit them with a hammer. So let's not hope, we're not going to hit anybody with a hammer, but we want to talk about some, some very strong things in Scripture tonight. Now, we're talking about the seven altars of Balaam. I call them the seven altars of heresy. And as we get into the story, I'm going to lay a little bit of a foundation before I get to those altars so that when we get there, you'll understand the premise of it. Now, when I go into the New Testament, uh, the prophet, if I can call him a prophet, Balaam, uh, is mentioned three times, as a matter of fact, in the New Testament. We're going to look at a couple times tonight. He was a guy that was despised, whether it was in the Old Testament 
or the New Testament. And I look at him as an apostate. He was a very wicked individual who could have been very great. Now, in 2 Peter 2, 2 and 15, it says this. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. In other words, to forsake the right way, you have to be on the right way. Peter's speaking about those forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. And then in Jude, the first chapter, verse 11, it says this, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Again, we find Balaam's sin mentioned in the book of Jude. Now, when we look at some of the sins that these people committed, you know, Cain reaped the seeds of his self-righteousness when he thought his own sacrifices were equal to those that God required. In other words, God had asked for a blood sacrifice, but Cain felt that his sacrifice of what was important to him was equal to God's command. Matter of fact, um, when God accepted Abel's sacrifice, and God did not accept Cain's sacrifice, Cain looked at his brother Abel and he hated him. He envied him in the sense that he was accepted, his sacrifice was accepted by God. But you know what? Because of his action and his obedience and his self-righteousness and pride, a seed of murder was born in his heart. And after a while, he became the first person on the face of the planet to kill another human being. He killed his brother in a fit of jealousy. Now, the Lord had warned him about what was taking place. But you know, sometimes pride sort of dulls the ears. Self-righteousness are like pairs of earmuffs deadening the sound of God's voice. Now, we look at Balaam. Balaam's lust was for money. It, the lust for that money, matter of fact, led him to lead God's people into a place where God would curse them for their sin. And then we look at Korah, and we're going to be talking more about Balaam's sin in a moment. But now we look at the third example mentioned in Jude. Jude, the first chapter, was Korah's sin of pride. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. Korah's sin of pride, he, he felt that he was as good, possibly better, than those that were in authority over him, and he tried to unseat that authority over the people for his own goal of, of elevation. He was motivated by his ego. Now, these three instances, they show the epitome of the human nature, which can be boiled down into three, three categories. If we take all the sin and try to get it into three categories, we'd come up with these three. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, 
and the pride of life. Now, I go back a little further, going back to Jude, the first chapter again, and I'm going to look at verse 4. Jude is writing, and he says this in verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I'm reading this, I'm not looking at someone outside of the body. I'm looking at the corruption that develops inside the body of Christ. They were ungodly, but they turned the grace that they lived in into lewdness, and they denied the authority and the word of the Lord. I go back, and I, in, in reference to Jude, the first chapter, verse 4, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We're reading a story about Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38. Now bear with me as I read. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew. I don't think it's a, too far of a uh, reach to say that that wild vine recognizes a wild and untamable spirit though they did not know what they were. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Man of God, there is death in the pot. You know, the scripture talks about a little leaven leaven at the whole bowl, uh, loaf. And sometimes that little seed or that little vine gets into the pot and it turns it all to poison. So Elijah said, so he said, then bring some flour and he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. The only way to battle deception, the poison of deception is with truth, with the bread of life. Flour makes up bread. And when they put the flour in, it could have been almost a type of the bread. That's why the Bible tells us in the last day to preach the word, be in season, out of season. Not to judge our situations by the word, but to let the word judge our situations. You cannot strain out the poison oftentimes you need to neutralize it with God's word. Did you catch that? Sometimes you cannot pull the tares out from the wheat. Sometimes those tares need to be neutralized by the preached word of God, the sword, the word of God. Now in Revelation 2 and 14, now here's the th third example of Balaam being mentioned in the book of the book of the New Testament, the books of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. 
in the second chapter, verse 14. And this is the Lord speaking, and he says this to the church, but I have a few things against you because some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block before the Israelites so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. I, if you've ever went and looked at uh, the site of Google and you tried to say, well, well, what was the doctrine of Balaam? Well, in this verse, it tells us what it is. He told, Jesus says what Balak was taught. Balaam taught him how to put stumbling blocks before the children of God so that they would disobey God and fall into sexual immorality and be cursed by God. So many times if we do not watch ourselves, that leaven in the loaf, that wild vine in the pot, will try to put stumbling blocks in front of you so that you would fall and eventually end up in apostasy like Balaam did. But let's focus on Balaam a little bit. Let's, let's look at what we know about him. Balaam was a man from a city called Pethor, and that was located in Mesopotamia, uh, located on the northern part of Palestine near the Euphrates River. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the location of that town, this town was located 350 miles north of Jericho. That's a long distance away. They didn't have cars and buses and, and transportation like we do today. That is a long trip. It was near the present border of Turkey. Now, Balaam was not an Israelite. He had a knowledge of who God blessed and who he cursed. He knew things about God and had some contact with God. But let me remind you, when God speaks to Balaam, don't think that he's speaking to him because he's a righteous man. God spoke to the devil too. God had a conversation with the devil. So we can't justify him as being good because God spoke to him. So to go on, it's, it's quite evident that he knew those nations on which God pronounced a curse, that they really, really and truly were cursed. And those nations upon whom God pronounced a blessing were truly blessed. He knew the principle. He, again, he was the son of Beor. And as again, in the Old Testament and New Testament, he's referred to as a, a, a wicked and reviled man. But when we look at the Old Testament, the instances that we come in contact with, he was well known. He was renowned. He had a name for himself throughout the Middle East. Even the five kings of Midian knew all about his power of divination. So let's go back and read from Numbers, the 22nd chapter. Let's lay a little bit more of our foundation. I'm reading from 22 and 1. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. 
Now, let me tell you that these Israelites, they're moving through this land like a steamroller. Nothing can stop them. And Balak fears down deep in his heart that he will not be, uh, he'll be the same as every other nation who stood before Israel. Now, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now he's quite a ways away, but he makes the trip down to Midian, and he, he um, eventually talks with Balak. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's, let's go back to verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee, in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, is sent to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God speaks to Balaam very clearly. Watch this. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes, more numerous, more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. He's laying that apple of temptation before him. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. Now therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. 
but only the word I speak to you, that you shall do. Now, I want to point something out uh, you may not have caught. Notice the condition that God was going to give him permission to go with. He said, if the men come to call you while you're sleeping, if they come to call you, rise up and go with them. In other words, that was going to be the sign that it would be all right and God would give his approval. But it seems that here that Balaam did not heed what the Lord had said, for he told him that if the men come to call you, you rise up and go with them. However, the scripture specifically mentions that Balaam rose up in the morning and went with them, not obeying God's word. He was so eager to go about this business of cursing Israel And it angered God. For God would uh, not tell him to do something and then try to kill him when he tried to obey it. So we have to look at that in Scripture. Have you ever wondered that? Why would God, on the way, try to kill Balaam if he told him it was all right to go? Balaam did not wait for the sign of approval from God to go. The men never came to him. He just got up and went to them. And so he disobeyed God. Because verse 22 says, then God's anger was roused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. He's so intent in this act of disobedience that he's completely negligent of what's going on in a spiritual realm around him. He can't see God blocking his path. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? (laughs) You know, I don't know if my cat started talking to me what I would do, but I wouldn't have a conversation with her, I doubt. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand. In other words, he's saying, I wish I could turn my foot, my hoof into a hand for I'd kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey in which you've ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he calmed down and he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. 
Your attitude, your actions, he's saying, they're perverse to me. The donkey saw me, and what he's indirectly saying is, but you couldn't see me because you were so intent on doing evil. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. It's a loaded question. He knows it displeases God. He's there on his own accord. Those men didn't come to wake him and ask him to come. He ran ahead of God. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but the only the word that I speak to you that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, the boundary of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, Look, I've come to you. Now have I any power at all to do or say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirjath, who's off. Then Balak offered oxen, sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. Stop a moment. Did you see that last verse? Then Balak offered oxen and sheep. In other words, he offered them, he wasn't an Israelite, he offered them to an idol. And so he sent meat from that sacrifice, meat that was sacrificed to an idol to Balaam to eat. No good Israelite would take food or meat that was offered to an idol. Now I go back, um, back to 23 here in verse 27. Then Balak said to Balaam, please come, I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it will be please you. I'm actually jumping ahead quite a bit to the numbers of the 23rd chapter. This will make sense in just a moment, bear with me. Then Balak said to Balaam, please come, I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. Now, this is where I want to look at the seven altars. Build me seven altars. They went into the high places, first of all, of Baal, And they built seven altars on the high places that were dedicated to another god. Now the patriarchs of old never built more than one altar in a place. They never erected more than one altar. When you built more than one altar in a place, it was always a badge of idolatry. So when Balaam tells him, tells Balak to build seven altars... He's mixing in idolatry into the action. 
Now, when we look, and I think Balaam understood this, the number seven in scripture is very significant. It symbolizes perfection or completion of an event. Let me give you some examples of the number seven being used in scripture. And Balaam knows this. He knows some things. It says, ceasing from work of creation on the seventh day. No one was to work on the seventh day. The blood of atonement was to be sprinkled seven times before the mercy seat. The consecrating oil was to be sprinkled seven times upon the altar. That's in Leviticus 8 and 11. The leper was to be sprinkled seven times, and seven days were appointed for his cleansing. Seven days were to be employed in the consecrating of priests, Leviticus, the eighth chapter. Seven times Balaam washed in Jordan, 2 Kings 5. Seven priests blew trumpets before the ark when David brought it home. Seven priests with seven trumpets blew and the walls fell down at Jericho. Seven priests blew trumpets before the ark when Dave brought it home. Again, First Chronicles 15, 24. Every seventh day was a Sabbath. The seventh year, a year of rest. And seven times seven was the year of Jubilee. And then last of all, I, my last example is in the book of Revelation. John mentions the, the emblems of the seven seals of a book open. He mentions the seven trumpets sounded by seven angels and seven vials poured out by seven angels. The number seven is used very consistently throughout the Bible in reference to God. On the other hand, number six is always less than perfection and that's symbolic of Satan, i.e., the mark of the beast will be six, six, six. So the number seven is very significant to God. So let's build seven altars. Let's offer seven bulls. Let's offer seven rams. So what is happening is the same thing that happened in 325 AD in our, in our New Testament, in our dispensation of grace. We're going to bring in a wild vine. We're going to take something that's complete, something that's holy, and we're going to bring something that's apostate into it. 325 AD, we started to mix the monotheistic God with the pluralism of idolatry. We started to make God look like the idols that once inhabited uh, Palestine in the Old Testament. Now, when we go back and we look at the messages that Balaam delivers to Balak, how many messages do you think that he gives uh, Balak? He gives him seven messages. If you've got a pen, you can write them down. His first message or blessing comes in Numbers 23, 1 through 12. His second blessing or message comes in Numbers 23, 13 through 26. His third blessing comes from Numbers 23, verse 27 to Numbers 24 and 14. 
His fourth message comes in number 24, 15 through 19. The fifth, numbers 24, 20. The sixth, numbers 24, 21 to 22. And number seven, uh, number 24, 23 to 25. So even when we look at how this is formulated together, seven is so mixed so solidly into the core of the fabric of the story. Now, I'm going to go back to Numbers 23 and look at the first verse again. Balaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. Whatever he reveals to me, I'll tell you. Then he went off to a barren site. God met with him and Balaam said, I prepared seven altars. On each altar I've offered a bull and a ram. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Go back to Balak and give him this word. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with all the Moabite officials. Then Balaam spoke his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? This occurs three times. Each time he pronounces a blessing. Matter of fact, it goes on beyond three times. It's like I mentioned a minute ago, it goes on to seven times. And Balak is so totally frustrated. It says in Numbers 24, then Balak, I think we're in verse 10, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave it once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. That was like a knife in that corrupt diviner's heart. You could have received a ward. You could have got recognition and honor, but you have obeyed the voice of God and you have turned your back on something that you really desired to have. And Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you the messengers you sent me? Even if, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord. And I must say only what the Lord says. You know, I sometimes feel that the Lord has given Satan some liberty, but the Lord has got a leash on him. He doesn't have ultimate freedom. Even when we look at the book of Job, Satan could go no further than what God would allow him to go. And so it is with this prophet, this diviner named Balaam. Now I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in the days to come. Then he spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Now notice the prophecy that comes from Balaam's lips. This is 
one of the first prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. It says a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. See, God can even use something, someone with a rebellious heart, with a sinful nature. We have to judge people by their works, not by what they say. Now, after these things that are shown to Balaam and after the things that God has revealed, the future through his mouth, you would think that would have changed this wicked heart. You would have thought that after all the things that he saw, all the conversations that he had with God would have turned him around, but it doesn't. The corruption, the evil nature that's inside of his, his spirit will not be changed, even with all the association with the purity of God and truth and being a mouthpiece of God. Go to Numbers 25, verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove. We're, we're jumping ahead just a chapter or two. This is going beyond where Balaam goes back home. This is something that takes place just a little bit in the future. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotly harlot tree with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. Indeed, indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were twenty. 4,000. See, Balaam wasn't able to curse Israel. God wouldn't allow him to curse Israel. This is exactly what Balak was hoping for. He wanted to see Israel defeated. He wanted to see them separated from the blessing of God. Now when I go back and I look at the end of Balaam, Balaam had actually, let me, well, before I say that, let me say this. Balaam had went back to Balak, and he had taught Balak, he convinced them to use the women the, the, of Moab and Midian to entice the men and to bring them into the camp of, 
of Moab and to get them involved in idolatry. He used women to entice them through lust. And they went into the temples of Baal and they worshipped Baal as they were led captive by silly women, so to speak. That's how Balaam was able to teach Balak to get Israel to be cursed by God. You want to know how it ended for Balaam? Notice Numbers 31 and 8. And they slew the kings of Midian, beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian, Balaam also the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. He could have been something completely different. But there was something in his nature, the wildness of the vine, that he was intent upon harming the children of God and not in blessing them. You know, have you ever wondered what it is that God really wants you to do? What is it that God really requires of you? How do you maintain a fellowship that is holy and sanctified before God? What does the Lord require? Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. It's not a confession. It's not identifying with him and the cross solely. Those are important. But it's obedience and submission and love and adoration. Those are the things that bind us to God. Bible says, not love, not the world, neither the things of the world. For if any man loveth the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I love life, but I'm certainly not in love with this world. You know, the Lord tonight has placed before all of us a blessing and a curse. See, the devil's like Balaam. He'd love to come in and get God to curse the church. He liked to put a little leaven in the loaf or a, a, a poisonous vine in the pot. But I want to tell you that God wants to bless the church, but he can only bless it when there's no leaven and no impurity. Deuteronomy 11, verse 26. See today, I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I'm giving you today. And a curse if you do not or if you disobey the commandments of the Lord, your God, and turn aside from the path that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. You get to choose which one you want. You get to choose whether you receive a blessing or a curse by what you do and what you associate 
with and what you say and how you live and where your affections lie. You know, a lot of people hate God. Do you know that God repays those who hate him? Deuteronomy 7 tells us that. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Everyone's going to receive their wages, whether of righteousness unto blessing or of wickedness unto judgment. What does he actually do for those who love him? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, 9. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and he's redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He did that because he loves you. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. And those who love him and keep his commandments. Two commandments. Two great commandments the Lord spoke about. They fulfilled all the law, so to speak. He said, if you took the whole law and you made them into two commandments, the Lord said, the two would be these. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy might. And the second would be, love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments contain basically the message of the law. I guess we choose the path that we walk. Balaam had had ample opportunity to have changed his life, but instead he used the things that he knew about God in an unholy way. And instead of appearing in the annals of righteousness, he goes down in the record of wickedness. Tonight, I would say to everyone listening to me, choose today whom you shall serve. And Joshua said, but for me and my house, we choose to serve the Lord. Now, Lord, tonight I I pray that your spirit would sweep through every living room, every auto, every place that people are listening. And as I'm speaking, Lord, you're speaking inside their heart. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.